Hello, and welcome to the Movie Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll have a spoiler-filled discussion about a movie we think you'll enjoy. I am joined in this episode by my sister Kay, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on Robin Williams' Comic Genius. This is a five-disc DVD set. Now, I'm actually putting this under the movie category. I could arguably put it under the TV category because this was HBO, so made for TV. Really, most of it was comedy specials, but this is one of three different versions of this. Mm-hmm. There's a single-disc version, the five-disc version that we've got, and then a... 22. 22-disc 20, set that covers um, his entire, uh, I mean, just about everything. It only has... 20 of the Mork and Mindy episodes, yeah, I think. Yeah, something like that, yeah. So, he's just, I mean, we started by watching most of the special features and stuff on the five-disc set together. Mm-hmm. And then you took the set for a while, watched some stuff. I took it and watched stuff. And I wound up watching, I think, all of the comedy specials. When when it comes down to it for me, what makes the DVD stand out is always going to be the special features. I mean, yeah. compared to watching something on TV, the DVD gets you the special features. Absolutely. For this, part of what made it unique is it covers... Decades. Yeah. His work from some stand-up stuff he was doing in the late 70s while Mork and Mindy was on the air up through some of his work... I think 2009, maybe even a little after that. Thereabouts, yeah. Uh, and some of the stuff, I'm not sure what the latest stuff he did on there was, because I, I, I was watching some stuff out of order. But there was one... Mm, Weapons of Self-Destruction was 2009. I'm wondering, though, if any of the clips from like Comic Relief or any of that stuff may have covered something after that. Oh, interesting point. And I mean, when you consider the comic relief work that he did with Billy Crystal and uh, Whoopi Goldberg, that's just amazing in its own right. And I forget if it was literally comic relief or he had something in San Francisco that he was doing as part of a show's not the right word, but an event. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember that footage. But it's hard for me to, to have clear delineations of different stages of his career, but certainly there's an iconic aspect of kind of that Mork and Mindy era when he was starting. And I watched the special he did, and one of the featurettes we watched had a lot of clips from it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you had watched the whole thing or not, but it was in one of the comedy places in the Hollywood area, I guess. I, I They didn't say which one. I don't remember even if they had. But they predominantly shot it either towards the stage or from looking at the stage, the left-hand side kind of out to the audience. Okay. I point that out because that means from the stage looking out, you don't really see much of the right side of it. And it was such that the part they cut off from almost center stage to the left, just off to the right of that, is Henry Winkler, who they cut to a few times. Just uh, a seat or two to his side at the same table is John Ritter. Elsewhere in the audience, and I couldn't really place where, Tony Danza. And... I'm thinking there was somebody else I recognized in that crowd. Was that the same show Harvey Corman was at or a different show? There was one show. It might have been. I'm not sure. There, there was, was one that Harvey Corman was at. Yeah. But this was 
Robin at just his his most improvisational at times, and some of it was clearly he had his routine. And I think part of his gift as a comedian was not only was he just a master at improv and just fast and just funny, but he also had stuff that was particularly watching a few decades of his material in short order, recurring bits, uh, stuff that was just kind of go-to things that he made feel like it was spur of the moment. Well, yeah, and some of what we watched where we were watching stuff where it was from like 1977, 78, 79. So it was all fairly back to back. We were seeing the same essential material, but he was tweaking it ever so slightly. And you could see kind of the evolution until the final bit where it was just so hilarious that you could see where in the beginning it had been funny. But he'd amped it up and perfected it over those years. He reworked his material, and it was hard for me to tell at times how much of that was he was trying to perfect it, how much of that was just he had it, but the way it was coming back to him changed the delivery. Or Once or twice, I felt like he was so on that he was almost in such a rush to get it out that he missed a line. I'm thinking of the bit where he put on the cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. And did the bit about Redneck. And the first time we saw him perform it, he didn't introduce it as a now for a commercial break. I couldn't tell how much of that was it was improv then and bit later or or not. True. One of the lines that Lewis Black used introducing, I think it was that Weapons of Mass Destruction or Self-Destruction or whatever it was there at the end, the 2009 one, was that that was Robin at his most relaxed on stage. Mm. He's not relaxed. It's Robin. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there is a fundamental difference, and part of it is, again, decades later, of his work in the 70s, where he was just so full of energy. At one point, he was literally climbing up to the balcony. Well, one of the comedians, I think it was Eric Idle, uh, who had One of the Monty Python ones. Yeah. And someone else later also said, but they were saying he would do a one-hour show in San Francisco mm. and be on such an adrenaline rush after that performance that he would go to a club that was having kind of a stand-up mic night and he'd do 20 minutes there and he'd still have so much adrenaline. Another club, another bit, another club, another bit until he'd just worn himself out and just yeah. dispelled all that energy. Yeah. And I get it. What got me having watched that full first one is it was – during the airing of Mork and Mindy, mm. this was his kind of release valve for the stuff he just couldn't do on TV. Because his, you know, it's funny because I never really thought, of, I mean, I knew there was a adult aspect to some of his jokes, off-color aspect, but I didn't always think of him that way. Although it's very clear there's a lot of profanity in some of this, a lot of uh, reference to body parts and things like that that are not meant for a younger audience, which is but fine. My mind goes to Morky Mendy and kid friendly. There's a lot of his stuff that's family friendly, and there's a lot of it that is not. And there was a lot of references to drugs, a lot of this, and it goes throughout the years. But in that early special, it was him at, I don't say his rawest and unrefined. He was a master at delivering the jokes, and it was hard to tell if he thought he was actually bombing. Or just, okay, a joke didn't go over, let's pretend I'm bombing, let's 
you know, do that kind of a thing. And it's just off the cuff, free association type stuff that he does beautifully. Mm -hmm. But the part that was in one of the clips that we had seen, just a snippet of, but we, I actually saw a play out is after he'd pretty much done his full set. And I'm trying to remember if that was the one where he was literally climbing up to the audience or whatnot. But it was certainly he was going back and referencing the cheap seats are now the good seats because he's in the back of the audience. First off, he had to be one of the earlier users of a wireless lavalier mic. Yeah. he was all over the place. I know somebody had referenced he hated handheld mics. But also, I am sure he drove camera people crazy just trying to keep up with him. But at the end of that whole thing, he does it. He does a whole bit as an old man, you know, kind of a thing. And goes out and then he comes back and he says, you know, kind of what I'd like to do now. And he points to a guy in the audience is bring this guy up. It was John Ritter. Mm. And I hadn't really associated the two. I mean, I knew uh, Robin Williams and uh, Christopher Reeve uh, went to Juilliard together, knew each other really well, became good friends. And if you think about it, the people I referenced that were in that audience at the time, Henry Winkler, Happy Days was airing. Mm -hmm. Tony Danza, who's the boss? Yeah. Um, John Ritter, uh, Three's Company. Uh, Harvey Corman, I think the Carol Burnett show would have been on at the time. Yeah. So you had some of the elite Hollywood comedians of the day there. And he picks John Ritter to come up and do some improv. And they knew each other. So it's not like just out of the blue, pick a, a guy. And it's okay. One of the things that is an improv thing is, you know, pick a, a character and a, a location and we'll do something. A lonely man at a, a restaurant is what comes up. Other things were suggested. And there was some, some let's whittle it down. And there was a point uh, right after that where, where John whispers something into Robin's ear of kind of, I guess I'll play the lonely man kind of a thing. And Robin introduces, okay, John Riddle will be the lonely man. I will play like everybody else. And they do the thing. And there there was a, a back and forth there that, I mean, Robin Williams has got to be something that is just got to be terrifying to be on stage with in terms of you never know where he's going to go. Well, in one of the clips, Billy Crystal said there is stand-up comedy and then there's Robin Williams. Yes. A lot of people do their bit, but when it comes to improvisational type stuff, Robin can take anything and run with it. And here was another guy that, I mean, I'd watched Three's Company. I thought uh, John Ritter was, was funny. He was good. But it was a bit more of a slapstick thing. Later, having read his Wikipedia page, there were people like Don Knotts referring to him as one of the best physical comedians of the era, which I would agree with. Yeah. It was a very physical kind of a comedy, which is very different than Robin's. But seeing those two on stage and John holding his own and having a good time with all of that was fun. And there was an aspect of, and part of it is he had the longer hair back then. Robin was just younger. And wanting to, to impress people, wanting to build his career or whatever. And then you look at some of the later stuff, like when he's in, well, so we got at least five HBO specials, mm -hmm. some of which were directed by the same guy, some of which were not. Yep. There was one of them that was, and I'm forgetting which one it was, uh, at, I think it was the opera one. Okay. Uh, he's at the opera house in, I guess, New York or whatever. It was clearly filmed on two nights and they were editing between. How do I know this? He goes behind one of the little pop-up things on stage where I guess the conductor would have been, or I don't know. And he pulls out, oh, I got some water, and he drinks it or whatever, and winds up putting it down on stage, has what looked like tea or soda or something like that, drinks some, puts that elsewhere on stage. So for the rest of the two-hour special, they were cutting between the night where that was on stage with the, the soda or whatever, and the night it was not. 
funny. And at first I'm like, what's going on there? And I, I, most people might have missed that, whatever. That's funny, and though. It was smoothly cut, so you couldn't really tell. He was wearing the same thing both nights. But there was another one, and we'd watched the- Behind the scenes? Behind the scenes with the director, where he's saying, yeah, when the water fell, we just went with it or whatever. But that was one where there was a uh, like a cocktail table there, and that's one of those, it's got the single stand, round table, that I swear had an entire case of bottled water there. And in that early comedy special in the 70s, he was talking about how much better it was to be in the audience than up on that hot stage, and he was sweating yeah. profusely. So later, and this would have been 2000 or later, I guess, by that point in his career, he'd gotten to where he'd had all these water bottles. He'd take one, crack it open, and just take a quick sip, put it down, come back later, take a quick, you know, kind of thing. They're really drinking a lot of it, but they, they would empty out, and it was just, and at one point, he didn't quite set it down right, and it spilled or whatever. Oh, yeah, you know, and he, he went with it, but it was different to see him in that era where he was almost constantly either wetting his lips or hydrating or whatever. Because he was still sweating profusely. I mean, he had a lot of hair and hot stage, and he was very active. Yes. Okay, he was all over the place. But compare that to the 70s, uh, early 80s, where he was taking sips of whoever's wine or whatever in the stage, which you just would not probably do these days. Yeah, random people's drinks. Yeah, and he was doing prop comedy versus later, he didn't really have any props. Mm-hmm. Now, it was funny because in one of them, and it might have been that same early one, he went for one of the props and he's like, oh, no, it's not there. And that was, I think, what set him on the the night's going horrible kind of thing. So, I mean, one of the secrets to prop comedies have the props. Well, one of the one bits we were watching, uh, he had what I guess was a place Richard Belzer had set up. And Richard Belzer goes off the stage. So he's like, I'm going to go through his props. Mm-hmm. See what he has and what I think I that was one it. of the comedy store anniversary ones. And it was that just somebody would be up for a bit. He and, and Belzer did a little bit and then he kind of took over or whatever. Yeah. And watching the stuff through the years, there were a couple of jokes that were, I don't want to say recurring, but reused and made topical. He'd made a joke during the Reagan era of you never see Ron talking while Nancy's drinking. Later, he made a joke about how you didn't see Bush talking when uh, Cheney was drinking, you know, kind of a thing. Kind of a one's the puppeteer, one's the the puppet. Some material is simply good. You know, if it was being you, if he was around today, he'd have done that about different people. Yeah. It's the same joke, but it's still funny in the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. And he always knew how how to make it topical and stuff. Well, one of the things we watched together was an interview that was done during season one of Mork and Mindy, and the host of the interview was Dick Cavett. Yes, and that was a two-part PBS thing, and I guess it was the Dick Cavett show that was running on PBS, and this was just two nights, clearly filmed back-to-back. And I felt, I'm not that familiar with Dick Cavett. I know he was a big name back then, interview, that kind of a thing. And I think I'd seen bits and pieces of him on some other stuff, but not, not knowledgeable. I think he made a tactical error, and that was... A couple tactical errors. One, not having a really great game plan going in. Yeah. Two, they seem to have just rushed there from something else. And three, instead of prompting Robin and letting Robin go, he was trying to control the conversation a little too much. And then later, he was trying to do improv with Robin. Now, I'd actually watched that with you before watching that special with John Ritter up there. And after the the DeCavett one, I was convinced pretty much nobody could keep pace with Robin. And there are a few people who have shown they could. John Ritter obviously did. 
in uh, the later season of, of Mork and Mindy when they get- um, Jonathan Winters? Jonathan Winters, thank you. I was blanking on the name. Yeah. He clearly could. Well, and Jonathan Winters was one of the inspirations for Robin Williams. Yeah, he flat out says that, I think, in the interview with uh, with Cavett. Yeah. But there were things where there were- in that interview with Cavett, there were times when Robin would get introspective. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I hope they include on the 22-disc set, but they did not include on the five, was the Inside the Actor's Studio mm-hmm. interview he did. And I forget who the host of that was, but he's he's a good interviewer. And he knew when to just let Robin run with something, when to kind of corral him back to a question or something. He asked good questions. And with Robin Williams, there are those moments where he just kind of does a joke, a riff, and okay, let's give a goofy answer. And there are other times where he, he's he got that introspection. He's got that depth. He gives a meaningful answer and stuff. One of the things that Robin brought up in the Dick Cavett interview that I want to say got brushed aside. And part of it was Dick Cavett seeming to not know how to deal with the answer he got. Mm-hmm. And some of it may have simply been it was 1979. A whole different time yes. and social awareness, if you will. But he asked Robin a question about basically how you deal with this, that, and the other. And Robin opened the door of, and depression is an aspect of that. Yes. And to realize that as far back as 1979, Robin Williams knew he was dealing with depression and acknowledged it in that forum. But also to have seen it be brushed aside without truly being acknowledged. I took that as Dick Cavett... Didn't know how to answer, was my take. Uh, Yeah, uh, that was not my take. My take was more that Dick Cavett had his questions and he was going to go through them as as best he could, even if he bounced around. Not that he was in the moment having a, a meaningful conversation with Robin. Well, and I think that's part of my didn't know how I answer. I don't think he brushed that answer aside. I think he brushed a lot of answers aside. Yeah, that could yeah, that could well be. And that was part of what I really liked when I had, uh, back in the past, watched that Inside the Actor's Studio mm-hmm. one, is I thought it was very insightful. I thought it was well done. And also, there was one on looking back at the comedy store, which seemed to have been Robin's clips out of a bunch, but it was yeah. shown back to back, so it was as if it was an interview. But they would keep going to title cards of what the question was. Yeah, something that uh, E had E'd shot. put together. And it was not Robin at his wacky and zany. It was... Robin wanting to be respectful and thoughtful and understanding. Really, this is a tribute to someone's life's work. And I want to honor that. Well, and a, a place that was meaningful to him at a yes. point in his career and stuff like that, that he owes a lot too. So he was very respectful, very introspective, and very insightful. Yeah. I mean, there are times where it would be easy to take any comedian and just, oh, he's just going for some laughs. Yeah. And that's their job. So yeah, sometimes they definitely are. But there are other times where to get those laughs, they've got to have a keen insight into the human psyche in general and certain people in particular and know when to go for a laugh, when not to go for a laugh, and how not to go for certain laughs. But there have been times when we've been at some of these conventions and we've come out of a panel and asked one another, do you think we just got an honest answer or do you think they gave the answer they thought would get a laugh? There have been a couple of 
convention panels we've been to where it was very clear, ask whatever you want, but I'm treating this as a comedy routine. There are other times where it was kind of ask whatever you want, and I'll give, I'll, I'll keep talking until I think I've answered the question. And other times where it's like, no, I'm going to give you a meaningful, heartfelt answer. And I can think I've got a particular person in mind for each one of those categories at the moment, actually. And it was fun watching the comedy specials and the interviews with Robin over the years. Because it was also the interview with him and the director of one of the comedy specials. Yeah. I think it was the one where the water was spilled or whatever. Yes, it was. They'd worked together before. The guy knew what he was going into. And he said, you know what? I'm going to edit this live. Not live with the delay. Not live and let's fix it later, but live. And Robin had known that was going to be the case, but he also had the yep, and this guy thought he was going to do that, and he did it. Kind of, I respect it, and I think you were nuts. Kind of, Robin knew Robin. Yeah. This other guy knew Robin, and, the, and Robin knew he was still going to do it that way. Hats off to you, buddy. I know you can do it, but why would you have tried? Yes, yeah. And it was funny because particularly after having watched the other one where it was cut between the two nights, that one worked really well. Mm. Now, I spent half the thing waiting for the water to spill. Yeah. Because I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But there's an aspect of that director had seen the show a number of times, knew it was always going to be a little bit different, knew that particular night that Robin was frantically writing new material. And it's one of those that I think my suspicion is Robin had, again, we know he had a wonderful gift for improv. No question about that. I'm not certain how comfortable he felt remembering all of his material. Or if it was, this is funny, it came to me, I better write it down before I forget it. And that some of the differences you see in some of his routines is just that recall aspect of it comes out just a little bit different each time. Yeah. And I'd be fascinating to, to know if uh, which was which or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because it was never bad. Yeah. And there were times where almost the worst he thought it was going, particularly that one night where it's like, oh my God, I'm in the land where nothing is funny or something. That... He didn't just give up. He, he, it's like, okay, welcome to my world. Let me show you how, you know, this works. And it's just, you could tell some of that was truly, it felt completely off the cuff. It was almost like you were watching the inside of a computer program. Pull this, do this, try this. Oh, I'm getting this reaction. Let's go with this. Well, he and the director in their interview talked about kind of different types of audiences in yes. terms of you had, they had specifically at one point a show they did two nights in a row, and the first night, the audience was basically all Hollywood insiders. I thought that director had a brilliant idea of when we're, they're going to film it, he said, I need the first two rows for, for cameras and stuff like that. Don't fill them. Mm-hmm. And then what he did that night was pull people from the balcony cheap seats that were the ones that were diehards, man, however we can get in, we're getting in, and put them in front. Yeah. It was funny because there was another one he did as part of something else i forget if it was a later comedy store special but it was not at the comedy store it was in the big venue and there was somebody he interacted with front and center and just kind of couldn't shake him loose afterwards um which was kind of funny so there's risks yeah, just to putting yeah, certain people in definitely front. but they were saying that kind of all these insiders for whom basically this is work they're not as responsive they're not the big gregarious laughers. They're not the expressive people that, that genuine fans are. That was something that that concept Robin used in his, his routine over the years. 
where you would have those people of, oh, yes, that's it's quite amusing. Yeah. Versus the laugh and the, mm-hmm. not the honest reaction, but the, the more visceral, raw reaction. Yeah. Well, and the director said that after the first special he had done with Robin, where that first night, basically... They, there was no visible reaction in the audience because they were all so busy mentally thinking, you know, can we make money off this guy or not? How can was, we use him? What we use him for? Yeah. Yeah. The implication. He said, from that night on, whenever I've done any special like this, I dim the house lights entirely so you can't see specific people. Yes. And then I light the architecture. Because you do want some light in the house, you want some interest, but seeing specific people in the audience is distracting. Well, and it's funny because I think we watched that after we'd watched one of the interviews that cut back to the the early comedy special where you would see some people in the audience. And certainly afterwards, I watched a few of those things. And when you know, oh, Mr. T's over there or, you know, Henry Winkler's over there or you know, whatever, you keep wondering, are they going to cut back? I want to see that person's reaction. Yep. And that was part of why when they f- shot the one such that you generally didn't see half the audience, and that's where the, the more famous people were, I kind of respected that. Yeah. You know? Well, one of the things that really impressed me during that Dick Cavett interview was towards the end when they went out in the audience. Yes, Dick Cavett was, you like to to go into the audience and be improvisational. Let's do that. And there was a certain Robin, well, okay. um, Robin was up for anything that night in some respects. He was. He was a good sport about it, but there was also an aspect of, I got to wonder if he was a little disappointed with the interview. I think he was. I think he should have been. There were times when he made comments of, can you see your career flashing before your eyes? And things like that, which is why I say I think he was. Um, there were times when he he physically got up and started walking around the set looking for anything to distract the interview from where it was. Well, and there were a couple of times he did that and it totally threw Dick Cavett. He went over to uh, looking at the stage off on the left. There were some things. I don't know. They were like big candles or something like that. And he's like, oh, these are these are bolted down. And Dick was like, they are? kind of like this is his set and he had no idea yeah which was kind of funny kind of sad but when they actually got out into the audience again this is late 70s uh tv small studio audience i mean the the seats went maybe four rows back it seemed like one of the people in there was a tv critic that uh cavett immediately pegged as such Uh, i think even took his uh pad that he was taking notes on and robin quickly then took it and looked it over, but wasn't really reading what was there, it seemed like. He came across as basically reading gibberish off it. Yeah. Acting like he was reading it, but reading nonsense the way Robin Williams does. So you're laughing your head off because you know that's not what it really says. He used the pad as a prop, not as material. Yes. Whereas Dick Cavett then took it and used it as material. Yes. And there was also a time where Dick was going to move over to a particular person. And Robin's like, no. Well, let's go back to the pad for one moment. Okay. The moment Dick Cavett actually read something off it, Robin Williams confiscated it and returned it to the critic. Yes. It's a line is being crossed here. Take it back. And I think he even made a comment of, and there goes our careers kind of. Yes. Uh, It was very much a Robin Williams knew which lines 
you can cross, i.e. you can take the pad and not read it, and you can give the pad back having not read it. Borrowing something from somebody Robin did multiple times in some of his early things, complete with taking somebody's jacket, making a number of comments on it, wearing it for a bit, handing it back. Um, He had a good sense of which lines to cross and not cross. And as you were about to say, with having a good gauge of who would be a willing participant and who, no, they don't want to participate. He seemed to be able to read people really well of knowing when he could kind of make a quick comment and when he could actually engage with somebody and when it's, I don't think engaging with this person is the right choice. Let's move over here. Yeah. They're uncomfortable. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. And he was trying to make sure everybody had a good time. Yes. He'd make some jokes that if, I don't say at people's expense, but something that they could laugh at. Yes. Like in one of the uh, comedy specials where it was um, the Great American Opera House or something like, I forget the the exact venue, but it was one of the big uh, like uh, dinner theater ballroom type places. Somebody had a fur coat that he took, made some comments on, and, you know, all the cats in the neighborhood are, you know, cold because of this, kind of like it was taken off them. And he lifts his arm up, and there's this strip under the arm, about two inches, that is not fur. And it's like, oh, you couldn't afford the underside, kind of. You know? And there were a few things like that, that it, it was clear that it was take what you've got and make something of it, but not eviscerate the person. Yes. And a few times where he would start in, not get a good reaction, quickly back off. And sometimes jokingly so. And it, it's a it's a hard job to do well. Mm-hmm. He was, I think, one of the, the masters at it throughout his life. His style changed and evolved over the years. Some out of, I think, just necessity, times changing, etc. I don't think he could have or should have done that early act in 2009. Mm. But when he did that early act... That was around the era of Steve Martin's wild and crazy guy, and he was the king of, of stand-up comedy at the time, or thereabouts, I don't know the exact dates. Um, and it was it was very much a different world, because back then in the late 70s, there was the three major networks in PBS, there was not the internet, there was not camera phones, there was not yeah, yeah. a lot of things that we just take for granted today. Well, back in one of the things from the 80s that was in one of the clips, uh, he was doing a routine and going on about recycling, about plastic bottles out in the ocean. He has social awareness to his comedy. What I loved on the recycling stuff, because he touched this a couple of different times. There was one of, you know who really hates this? The raccoons. (laughs) And just kind of taking the, oh, I guess it does hurt them. Kind of, you know, he he comes at it from such a different angle. You're messing up their menu. Yeah. And then he had another time of basically kind of, let's go past green, let's go brown, you know, and, and, you know, when I realized I was essentially farting methane, I could power my own car. (laughs) And it was a short bit, but it was hilarious. And he was able to do the social commentary on everything from our relationship with Russia back in the Cold War era to, you know, uh, politics, uh, you know, during the, the, the Bush era. Well, his gift with accents to the point that many people, when they first saw him perform in the 70s, didn't believe he was an American. 
He sounds Russian. He must be Russian kind of a thing. His gift for characters. It's funny because there was a couple of times it's like, I don't know why I made the squirrels Irish, but it works. You know, kind of. It's He's got sometimes the routine he knows he's going to do, but sometimes it just kind of takes a life of its own. And there were a couple of voices that were go-to voices. Mm. The Lawrence Welk one. Yes. Uh, again, the the Irish one. There's a particular actor who was kind of short in stature and around that time that one of the other voices was a dead ringer for. He had one that was kind of the uh, New Yorker Hamptons rich. The posh, almost mm-hmm. the Thurston Howell-ish yes. kind of upper crust type. Yes. That he would he would have as a go-to one. Mm-hmm. There was there was just a handful, and it, it, I mean he had a wide range, but there were a couple that you you start to recognize. Yeah, the redneck, the the preacher, mm-hmm. uh, versus the 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 Catholic father kind of a thing, you know. Yeah, and he could switch between them on a dime, and he had an incredible ear for that kind of a stuff. And the modern comedian that I feel is similar in that respect is Gabriel Iglesias, Fluffy. Who does just a ton of voices? Um, it doesn't have the improvisational kind of style. He's more of a storyteller comedian, if you will, mm. but could fill his own cartoon world with voices, um, as we have seen Robin do in things like Aladdin and, and whatnot. Yeah. So there's a, a, a definite gift there, and part of it is observational, part of it is recreational of, of this is what they had, let me bring that to you. And there was a point when he, in the Comedy Store one, he tried to do uh, uh, Mitzi's voice. Mm-hmm. And he was disappointed in himself. It's like, I'm close, but that's not it. It's been long enough since I've heard the voice. I'm sorry. Yeah. But he was doing it not as a caricature of the person. He was hearing her voice in his mind and wanting to share it. Yes, exactly. He wanted to, to convey what the moment was like. Yeah. And there were a couple of times where he would be, oh, you know, I, I had this conversation with De Niro. Here's what De Niro said as De Niro, you know. And it's when somebody pulls that off brilliantly, as he did, mm-hmm. it's fun to watch. Yeah. And seeing his evolution from young comedian to seasoned comedian to, you know, uh, he did the last one. He was, I think, 58. It was after he'd had heart surgery. And he was talking about that and and stuff. And he was saying, I think in that last one at one point, he went from, you know, having done drugs as a a, a younger person to now his drug dealer was his doctor. And the drugs are going to kill you to now you need them to live sort of a what happened there moment. And his film work. Remarkable. I don't know what percentage of it I've seen. I've seen some of it. Not enough. Absolutely. I haven't seen One Hour Photo. I haven't seen Goodwill Hunting. I haven't seen What Dreams May Come. I haven't seen, um, I'm trying to think what else I haven't seen. There's a lot of it I haven't seen. I think you've seen Dead Poets Society. That's one of them I don't think I've seen. Interesting. I've seen Hook. I've seen Popeye. I've seen A World According to Garp. Definitely saw Good Morning Vietnam. I thought he was brilliant in that. Oh, he was brilliant. Definitely. And that's one uh, we actually got our dad to see. That's the kind of comedy I associate with Robin Williams. Yes. Freeform association, mile a minute, hilarious, where and how does he come up with this without needing to fall back on jokes about 
body parts or having a profanity in there. And when in some of the later ones, the uh, number of F-bombs and stuff like that were, were insane. But it was not to be vulgar. It was to express utter and complete disbelief that there were other ways he could have expressed, but that's how it came out for him. Well, with Good Morning Vietnam, the way he introduced the songs was so wonderfully done that when they put out the soundtrack, they kept his introduction to a lot of the songs. Absolutely. And I I remember listening to those tons of times and enjoying them every time. It was funny. Yeah. He, He had a gift for that. I've watched much of his television work. Um, we watched Mork and Mindy when it was on the air back then, probably haven't gone back to it since. And I remember the pilot episode, you know, he had come down to earth on an egg. So, uh, he's at Mindy's apartment. She's out for the day. He's gotten the eggs out of the, the refrigerator. Fly, be free and splat. Oh, you know, let's try the next. And just the way he would sit on the chair upside down, the, the physical comedy, the, the, the funny voices, all of that. It was the, the joy of that character is there was an innocence yes. there wanting to see the best in humanity. Yes. And there's an aspect where we really need that now. Mm-hmm. And you would need somebody who's got to look a lot harder to find it. Sadly true. Um, I would almost like to see a Mork 2.0, where this time they don't send the extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... Uh, his later work, um, The Crazy Ones, yes, with Sarah Michelle Gellar and stuff and a few, uh, quite a few other people, um, lasted a season. It was not him at his zaniest, but it had a brilliant mix of the, the um, almost improvisational comedic, you know, he's playing an ad executive, well, here's how we're going to sell it, and it's like he's spinning this off the cuff. It's scripted, okay, fine, whatever. But also some really poignant moments. When there was the the thing they do, because it was set in Chicago, where they, uh, for St. Patrick's Day, run the River Green or whatever. And somebody was saying, you know, why is this a big deal for you? You do this all the time. You know, kind of at crazy party, whatever. He's like, yes, but this is the day everybody does it with me. Mm, yes. And there was a part where how much of that was character, how much of that was Robin. Yeah. Because I question... How many people he felt could be true friends or just wanted to be entertained by him? You know, there was uh, one of the interviews with, I guess, his longtime manager. Mm-hmm. And his longtime manager is telling a story about someone else, telling a story to uh, him, Robin, and two other people in a car. Oh, yeah, yeah. As they're driving down the road. And to the manager's take, Robin gets distracted by a kid on the side of the road selling lemonade. Mm-hmm. But as we're listening to it, what I'm getting out of the story is that the other person has been telling a story about how his life was touched and influenced by the first time a certain celebrity took the time to meet him, etc. And here Robin sees a kid on the side of the road selling lemonade and possibly realizes this other celebrity and I have the opportunity to do the same thing he's talking about for this kid. This guy just talked about his brush with greatness early on and how that changed his life. 
we can do that for this person. Yeah, but the manager's takeaway was Robin got distracted. And I could see how that could be colored by having known Robin for, at that point, decades, and Robin sometimes getting distractible. Because I've got to imagine he was... A mile a minute. Well, I was going to say very self-distracting, because I always got the impression, and I, I never met the man, so I have no idea what he was really like, but I always got the impression his brain was stuck in high gear. I always got the impression that his brain was making connections faster than mine would have. I think faster than most people on the planet could have, because there were, particularly that that improv scene he was doing with, with John Ritter, there was some stuff that was just coming, 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 and even with some of the stuff with Dick Cavett that was clearly off the cuff, oh, let's do something in the style of Shakespeare, and he was just riffing in iambic pentameter or whatever. Well, and at one point when Dick Cavett's turn to give, a line comes and he says like three words. And the look on Robin Williams' face was just kind of a, you couldn't give me something to work with? Yeah. <laughs> Good effort. But I'll go from here, kind of. A, yeah. Yes, yes. I would have loved to have seen if such a thing exists. And what they had here, again, was the on the five-disc special, the five HBO specials and some behind-the-scenes, some other uh, comedy store routines or performances and some some interviews ton of great material definitely mm-hmm. worth it i'm not entirely sure what's on the 22 disc set but i would have loved to have seen interviews certainly the um the inside the actor studio i would love to have seen an interview with henry winkler mm. about robin yeah you know what was it like working with him on happy days him going on to his own show because robin williams after watching all that stuff i spent a little time on wikipedia reading uh, started with the Robin Williams page, went off off after that to Henry Winkler, John Ritter, and maybe one or two others. Robin Williams was not the person who originally played Mork. Mm. Somebody or was cast. Cast and actually filmed for a bit, but not used. Interesting. Okay, they wound up redoing part of that. Because uh, I don't know if they filmed it or just rehearsed it, whatever. They had somebody else. I forget the guy's name. He had done... The Adam and the Ant or the Adam and the Aardvark movies or whatever. He'd done some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Not a name I recognized. Wasn't working out. He got pulled and somebody said, Hey, try Robin. He got auditioned. He came into the audition, did the sit on the chair upside down, clearly coming at it from a different angle. Okay, let's try the guy. And it just took what people had already considered an unfilmable episode into a breakout star and hit. Mm-hmm. Um but seeing, getting Henry Winkler's, what was that like? What was it like sitting in the audience that night at the comedy club? Getting John Ritter's take of what was it like and stuff. Apparently, John Ritter and Henry Winkler, good friends. Um, I know uh, Robin Williams and Christopher Reeve, very good friends. Um, getting uh, Christopher Reeve, uh, as he was you know, rocketing to stardom as Superman and stuff, his take on Robin Williams, knowing him back before, during, and all of that. And also, as it seemed like Robin was incredibly supportive after Christopher Reeve had the, the horrible accident, uh, the, the horse riding accident, you know, left him paralyzed. We, uh, we had two reasons for doing this. First of all, the DVD came out. Yes. Okay. Oh, and I'm a big Robin Williams fan. So when you we said, hey, are. do you want to do it? I'm like, sure. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the, we have a big stack of stuff we want to do, so when to do it, 
part of why we prioritized it is October is Depression Awareness Month. Unfortunately, I'm probably not going to get this episode out until maybe the beginning of November, but October's come around. But yeah. Yes. We, so we, Depression Awareness Month, absolutely. Um, September was Suicide Awareness Month, which I'm glad is the wrong word, but it's good we have these awareness months that people talk about these things, that we help one another. Sad we need them, but good we have them. Yeah, just as a quick aside on that, and I've I've told you just a little bit about this, but not much. Um, since we got the DVDs, since I've watched them, uh, since we actually did the first attempt at recording this episode, which got lost due to technical, uh, I don't know if the SD card or the recorder, something only got, it got 20 minutes out of the 50, we said, okay, let's redo it. Since all of that, um, as we sit here tonight, uh, Earlier this week, a coworker had sent an email to everybody in the company explaining, hey, I'm back. I want to thank everybody for their support. For those of you who don't know, uh, her son had uh, a couple of weeks ago taken his custom motorcycle, driven to a remote place in town, and uh, died by suicide. And I've since talked to that coworker, not about that, because honestly, I don't know what to say, because there's there's... In my mind, no words that you can say to, to correctly or completely or accurately convey the tragedy of all of that. And I say that having, you know, I mean, sudden loss of a child you know, under any circumstances are horrible. Um, the, the particular nature of, of somebody feeling either that they had no choice or that that was the right call or whatever. I, my mind does not process that. I, I do not understand that. And I think everybody can get to the point where under certain circumstances, they could feel that way. And I think that's a, a f fundamental flaw in human society in total. Yeah. This is not an American problem. There are other countries that have other issues with that. I think I was reading somewhere recently that teenage suicide is on the rise. And I don't know, maybe it just, I have a huge fear of commitment and that's like the ultimate un undoable act but it's when when i first heard and it's been five years since we lost uh rob williams who was a, a literally a comedic genius i do not think that was overstating it for him yeah there's only a handful of people in that i can think of in the history of comedy that i'm aware of that i think rose to that level um and all in in different ways but to think that you know, what would have led to that? You know, we've seen other people on, on other shows. Uh, uh, we was one numbers, Oli Niles, uh, died the same way. And from the outside, it looks like, man, they must have it all. They're, they're in Hollywood. They've got a show. They've got this. They've got that. But you never know what's, what's truly going on with somebody, uh, either in private or just internally. And having read the Wikipedia page for Robin Williams, he was saying that there near the end, he had gotten diagnosed with, He'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's, but the autopsy showed he actually had something very similar. I think it was called, I'm going to get it wrong, Louis Body's disease, something. That sounds about right. Yeah, you go to the Wikipedia page and check. Yeah. But it sounded... It was paranoia and hallucinations and delusions were the symptoms of it. Yes. And when you think about having all of that and tremors in, I think it said, the left side of his body. 
just imagine paranoia, delusions, and hallucinations with someone with the keen mind we were just talking about. With the level of creativity his mind obviously had. Yeah. And the speed with which it seemed to work. uh, That just, there was a, a comment on that Wikipedia page where he had apparently told somebody, I just wish I could reboot my mind. Yeah. Well, and what made me think of why we were doing this now and everything is when you were listing off the people you wish Mm -hmm. we'd seen interviews from. John Ritter has passed away. Yes. Christopher Reeve has passed away. Yeah. So many of his friends had predeceased him. And I can't help but wonder if the diminishing support system yeah, it made it more difficult. If if he was because it seemed like the the ailment also had just cognitive impact and and reduced his capacity, I could see where somebody like him might have gotten to the point where they felt they weren't themselves. Yeah, uh, I know our our father had had feared having a pro- protracted illness, being in an ICU, or otherwise cognitively you know suffering and not be himself. Yeah. He didn't want his body to live if, if he was not really fully there. And I get it. Mm-hmm. And it took me years to really get around and uh, to an accepting level when he had said he had a do not resuscitate clause. Yeah. But I would like to think that if there had been some way for people to share that burden and take it off of him, and there isn't one, but if there had been, he could have gotten literally millions of people that would have been saying, you know what? You have brought a lot of joy and happiness and, and laughter into my life. If I can help lighten that burden, I will. Yeah. I get where people may not want to ask people to do that, but that's one of those things that I look at how many of his films, his comedy stuff that I've enjoyed over the years and not having that anymore mm. sucks. Yeah. And that's, that's nothing compared to what his family had to go through. His close friends had to go through. And I, I totally think that his uh, losing of, of various key people, because uh, there was a comment, I think, on the Wikipedia page that was attributed to his son, Zach, of, of how he and Christopher Reeves were like brothers from another mother or whatever, and Robin had paid for some of the medical stuff for, for Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve did not have a, a minor career. Yeah. You know, he did well for himself. And that kind of, of uh, paralysis and stuff like that and, and all of that, it's a heavy medical bill on on recurring basis for long-term care. The fact that Robin seemed to basically step up and I don't want to say not think twice about it because I'm sure it weighed heavily on him that his friend was in that kind of suffering and, and position or whatnot and wanted to be there to support, to make him laugh, to help. And I recall uh, – reading and hearing things at the time and Christopher Reeve explaining, you know, one of the first things he saw, you know, when he came to afterwards was Robin. I mean, that seems like an incredible kind of friend. Yes. And to see signs of him mentioning depression, knowing that it's not all just jokes and laughter, even early on, everybody has that to to some degree. Um, I'll try to put in the show notes, information about suicide prevention, about if you've got depression, getting help for that, because everybody needs a support structure. Everybody needs, in some cases, 
professional help in some way, shape, or form. Whether it is professional medical help, professional um, educational help, professional whatever. Uh, we're not living on this planet individually alone. There's- One of the things I tend to mention with my friends is we're all busy people. Yes. It's the nature of the current world, the world we live in. Oftentimes, it's not that we don't want to be a good friend. We don't mean to be a good friend. Sometimes you have to give people a chance to be a good friend. Mm -hmm. And instead of thinking so-and-so is ignoring the fact that I haven't been as out and about as I usually am or any of the thousand things that you feel are obvious, put a post on Facebook. I have been feeling a number of things. Reach out to somebody. Well, you can you can put a post on Facebook that is simply, I have been feeling more introverted than normal. I've been feeling like I'm not going out as much as normal. Mm-hmm. Any of a thousand little things just to let your friends know. And some of my friends have put posts as simple as, I could use a chat with a friend. Yeah. And your friends will answer. Your friends will reach out because they know you need them. Mm-hmm. It's not that they aren't reaching out because they think you don't need them, but we all just get busy and we all think, I'll do it tomorrow. One of the comments that kind of really stuck with me after um, the actor from Rizzolian Isles um, died, I'm blanking on his name at the moment. That sounds about right. It's been a couple of years, um, was how surprised and devastated the cast of that show was. They kind of had no sense that anything was potentially amiss or awry. And I definitely got the sense that had they known that, they would have tried to do something. Well, and they were working with him every day. Yes. 12 and 16 hour days. Well, my my coworker who just got back after a few weeks being off dealing with her son's death, my first clue was the email. I'm not saying I'm close to this particular person. I've known her for years. Lee Thompson Young. Lee Thompson Young. That's the actor's name. Thank you. He played Cyborg in Smallville. He was also the famous Jet Jackson. So, I mean, a guy who'd had a number of shows, doing good. Who would have who would have expected that? And you never know who you know is either going to have either personal problems themselves or a family member or something that has that. There may be warning signs. I don't know what they would be, but there's there are places that have that information. Um, it's it it's tragic. Every death, I think, is. Yeah. But when I was going through these Wikipedia pages, starting with Robin Williams, um, I understood a little bit more what may have spurned some of the the stuff near the end. And again, tragic, and and wish things had played out differently. Uh, again, the whole Christopher Reeve situation, uh, John Ritter's sudden death. Um, on that show, everybody is going to die at some point. And this is actually a conversation I had with my father as we were leaving on that trip at the beginning of the year, where his attitude was, nobody's immortal. Sooner or later, he, he was going to die. Certainly in no rush to. But he didn't want to live the rest of his life sitting at home waiting for that to happen. He wanted to go out, do a trip like we were doing, uh, enjoy whatever time he may have. And not waste it. And it's it's one of those things. It, things like this put stuff into perspective. You know, you look at these comedy specials. 
you see somebody who is energetic, is positive about life, has funny things to say, wants to entertain people. And, you know, you, you look at the way he handled unusual events. There was one, it was a YouTube video that you said, hey, I got to go check out. Robin Williams did a USO special or USO tour or whatever, not even a televised one. He was in, I don't know if it was Kabul or wherever. Over in the war zone. Over in the war zone. He's doing his bit, st- starting to get some laughs, whatever. Partway into a show on a military base. All of a sudden, uh, reverie plays or whatever. Everybody stands up, about faces away from him. Yeah. For about 15 seconds. Yeah. The people in uniform, if they don't have their caps on, they put them on. Uh, the two guys up by the stage who are taking photos for, you know, basically the equivalent of the base newsletter, if you will. Uh, one of them puts his cap on and tosses a cap to the other one so he can put his cover on. And they put their hands over their hearts or salute. If they're in uniform, they're saluting. If they're not in uniform, hand over their heart. Robin Williams, to his credit turns in the same direction everyone else has turned and puts his hand over his heart because, well, that's what the people not in uniform are doing. It was very much, I do not know what is happening, but I will, something is happening and I, I will, will respect blend. it. I will blend with the masses. Keep in mind, this is a war zone. He, I mean, obviously, they're not picking up guns and running. I think that would have gotten a different reaction out of him. Yes. Oh, and one of the things I didn't actually care for, because I was really impressed by Robin Williams, the people behind him on stage opened the door and they're peeking through with their cameras. They were kind of clueless or whatever. And he is just standing there quietly, mm-hmm. observing the moment, trying to, to blend in, like you said. And then there was... I forget if it was the same clip or another one. It's the same clip where, yeah. well, where okay. A day later, I no, think. No, no, that's you know. a different clip. Okay. okay, same clip. Everything ends. Suddenly, everybody turns back around to him and looks at him like, basically, why isn't the show going on? The people take their caps off. He drops his arm and he's like, so it's over, right? And everybody's like, uh-huh. He's like, so what just happened? Yeah, and he basically has a bit. I forget if it was there or one of the other ones where it's basically, yeah, having everybody turn and say, to hell with you that's not the exact words i think he used but it's just kind of that's a first for me yeah he turned, you take notice of that he's, he turned it into part of the comedy routine he's like i have never had an audience do that to me before can anyone explain it yeah and then he had there was one we watched where he was talking to two of the guys, I guess, either later that day or the next day. It was the day. next day doing photos with people. And he's posing. And he's like, you should have seen me at the show on base yesterday. And it was funny because as he was telling whoever was filming this the story, he was also making sure these guys had gotten their photo with him, their autograph, whatever they wanted. Yeah. And there was a behind the scenes thing at one of the uh i forget if it was the one in dc one of the other comedy specials i think it was the dc one where some people were had gotten basically uso tickets to see the show they'd gotten like a vip ticket or whatever Mm -hmm. and man oh you guys are are serving he was very thankful respectful Mm -hmm. Uh, the it seemed like he was doing the uso stuff a lot yeah and to me that was very cool for him to I don't say it is giving back, but to pay respect to the servicemen, mm-hmm. do what he could for them. And not only did he do that as part of the USO stuff, in my mind, the whole Good Morning Vietnam stuff. Yes. 
was a crazy respectful uh, thank you to the armed services. Yeah. Both in terms of portraying Adrian Cronauer a real person, but also in the way the the services were portrayed favorably. You know, whether you're for or against the Vietnam War or whatever, these guys were out there fighting it. Let's do what we can for them. So, yeah, there were a couple of, of things that were both on the DVD set and a few things that were not that really um, inform, I think, the the overview of, of who Robin Williams was. And it's the kind of thing that I would really would have found it interesting to have had the opportunity to, you know, have a, a dinner with him, whatever. I wouldn't, I would want to know the man behind the comedy. Yeah. More than the comedian. Because particularly when it was the, um, the special about the comedy store and he was talking about what it was like working at the same time in the same place as Richard Pryor and some of these other guys, there was a, a sense of, of not just honesty and perspective and whatnot, but here was a solemn that w- those were good days. Yeah. Maybe not perfect days, whatever, but kind of he misses them. He respects them. And there was a core to him that I don't think got let out enough. Um, I think to, to, to my satisfaction, at least not that he owed me anything or whatever, but again, there, there's, those quieter moments with him mm-hmm. and his power as just a dramatic actor. As a dramatic actor, he's phenomenal. I mean, we're back to Dead Poets Society. Um, I've seen What Dreams May Come. It's amazing. And it's one that I actually made sure was on our to be watched mm-hmm. stat because visually it's fantastic. Um, but in light of his life, mm-hmm. It's even more meaningful, if that makes sense, because it deals with death and it deals it deals with how we die in terms of I don't want to say if you have a good death, but it deals with suicide. It deals with sin and death, if you will, and people's beliefs about how you die and how that influences what happens after you die. Yeah. So at the time I originally watched it, I didn't know he was battling depression. I didn't know he'd ever considered suicide. I didn't carry that baggage into the movie with me. I don't think I knew any of that about him prior to his death. But it also, I think when I found out, didn't surprise me. Because I think there are certain people that their lives have been such, how could they not be a little bit haunted by certain things? You know, it's funny because... Our understanding of comedians has changed, I'd say, in the past 20 years. Yeah. Because until the past 20 years, really, I don't think anyone stopped to think what drives comedians to be comedic, to find the lightness in life. What are they trying to balance? Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing. So, like with Jim Carrey, there are people... Who were suddenly saying, hey, look, you know, Jim Carrey has these down moments. That's why he's trying to balance it with all this off the cuff comedy. When people start almost pointing, overcompensating. And I. Yeah. And when people started pointing that out, I started thinking, oh, okay, that does kind of, I'd never thought of that. Mm-hmm. I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mean, to make a very bad comparison, it's almost like when people would tell me, 
alcoholics were self-medicating. Comedy was a form of self-medicating. Well, it's a lot healthier than alcohol. So using that comparison, okay, I can kind of see what they're saying. But what dreams may come, I want to say that was from like 1998, 1999. So back before I'd even considered that people used comedy to balance the negative in their lives. And I wasn't even thinking in terms of like we talk so much now about comic relief in stories. Right. Which back in the 90s, yes, I was aware of comic relief in stories, but not not to the degree that you would be an off-the-charts Robin Williams to provide comic relief in your life from something else. That had never occurred to me. Yeah. No, I can I can see that. I only saw comic relief as a tool in a story. One of the things that I think was a turning point in his life was not only the birth of his first child, but that was right around the time I think Belushi died. And I think Robin had been out partying with him like the night before. So there's the did he dodge a bullet kind of, you know, that could have been me sort of. And that's when he really cleaned up his act in terms of uh, recreational use of of substances and such, from what I understand. And I think one of the things he took up was uh, bicycling Mm. and to get the, the, you know, endorphins going and that kind of a, a natural version of it. The endorphins going and the adrenaline out, I would think. Yeah. And it seemed that he built up a large collection of custom bikes to the tune of, I think, hundreds that his kids then donated to... One of Christopher Reeves' charities? Christopher Reeves' uh, foundation and and another place. I forget the other place. It's on the Wikipedia page. But that goes towards... uh, Again, Robin was doing, doing, doing well for... You know, his career, unsurprising, done many movies, TV shows, and just crazy popular. But how he also raised his kids well to, you know, put stuff out there in in beneficial ways. And again, supporting the Christopher Reeve Foundation seemed like something Robin would have wanted and obviously supported. Um, Well, one of the things that he alluded to in the bit about um, one of the specials was a uh, celebrities and their moms. Mm-hmm. And he alluded to in there the fact that, you know, it's not that he came from a poor family. His parents were doing okay. Apparently, his parents were quite wealthy. And uh, he used to joke, I gather, that uh, he was basically raised by the maid because mm. both parents worked. And that's part of why they were doing pretty well. But his parents raised him to care about others, to give to charities, that kind of thing. And that's part of why he did the farm aid and all these things is his parents instilled in him. It's you help others when you have more than you need for yourself. His upbringing and his meteoric rise to success could have very easily led to somebody feeling entitled Mm -hmm. that they had earned this or, or whatever. and. There was an almost innate humbleness and almost maybe feeling of unworthy of some of that. Yeah. Not that I think he felt unsure of his comedic prowess. And if he did, he was wrong. Mm. Guy was brilliant. But he never seemed to feel that made him better than anyone else. No, but he seemed aware that he was performing at the same time or alongside Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, a lot of other really great talents. Yes. You know, and whether it's 
the toss of a coin, the roll of a dice, whatever you want to call it, any one of them could have gotten the part of Mork. Well, that and kind again, of thing. somebody else did. Yeah. And when you think about it, not only did he not originally get Mork, Arthur Fonzarelli was not written for Henry Winkler. Well, and, it was written for yeah. a blonde, six foot Italian. And one of the people that was originally kind of uh, selected potentially for it was Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees. They were, were going in a totally different direction. I mean, imagine if if that had happened, but Mickey Dolan's as as some version of the Fonz, and it would have been a dumber brute that yeah was not the character we came to know and love. We probably never would have gotten a Mork episode at all, much less. I mean, had it been that original actor who was, again, not Robin Williams, and you look at how many things and how many ways Robin Williams impacted culture and society. Well, Mrs. Doubtfire. Mrs. Doubtfire um, in Mork and Mindy. Um, well, but with Mrs. Doubtfire, when you stop to consider, I mean, take the cross-dressing out of it, stop to consider that that was a movie about the fact that Kids need both their parents. Yes. Divorce sucks. Families falling apart sucks. But in the end, kids need a relationship with both their parents. Mm -hmm. That was a movie a lot of families needed. Yeah. I mean, it hid it all under comedy. It got people laughing about something serious. But that was, I think, part of his gift was able to bring the heart to the comedy and the comedy to the heart, you know. He had uh, an empathic aspect that even though he could be a profanity-laden comedian doing bits about drugs and all that stuff and and body parts and stuff on, you know, a comedy store stage or whatever, he could then Monday morning go and be this wide-eyed, innocent, mork alien from another planet and, and win the hearts and minds of, you know, society at the time. His, his range was insane, and he had a compassion to him, which is, I think, what led to uh, supporting charities, to doing the USO tours, to all of that stuff. And not just throwing money at it, but personal time and attention and, yes. and time and, and effort. Um, I mean, we, as a society, as a planet, uh, every death diminishes us to some degree. That particular one left a a hole that has yet to be filled at some point there will be another comedian that has that level of impact there have been some in the past uh i would say lucio ball is is one of those that's up there there are certainly other comedians i've high hold in high regard well the funny thing to me about lucio ball is that she could sing Mm mm-hmm I mean, you watch I Love Lucy, and you would think she could screech. But she really was a talented singer, but she did such a wonderful job of screeching on I Love Lucy that so many people think she can't sing. It was the same for the person who played the wife on um, All in the Family. So, yeah, there's a couple. Well, and Lucy Ball got so known for that particular role, Mm. whereas while Robin Williams was iconically linked with Mork over the years he played a number of other I mean Popeye uh, Peter Pan Goodwill I- Hunting was like a rebirth for him in some respects yeah yeah um 
and I mean, when you consider uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon came out of nowhere mm-hmm. with Goodwill Hunting, that movie's definitely worth seeing. On that's it's been on my list for a while. It's just not one I've gotten to yet. And there's aspects where as as brilliant of a comedian as I think Robin Williams was, I always loved seeing those quieter, more heartfelt moments. Mm-hmm. Because again, as a dramatic actor, man, he could sell those things. Yeah. And if you weren't careful, then immediately switch to a comedic joke and, and stuff on, you know, a moment's uh, instance notice. You know, one of the things he talked about in the Dick Cavett interview that in hindsight, I guess I realize now, oh yeah, that makes sense. It was in his training, but I never would have guessed. He talked about part of his acting training being mask training yes it was interesting because he was talking about how you would start with i guess a full face mask Mm -hmm. and you had to really act with your body and how by certain body positions that same neutral mask could come across as sad or happy or whatever so you you don't rely on just the expressiveness of the face and let's be honest rob williams had an incredibly expressive face he was one that in some of these other comedy specials, he could just by drooping his shoulders, slouching a little bit, maybe he'd put, you know, a jacket on or whatever, he would become the old man. He did a great melting. Oh, he, clearly the Wizard of Oz left an impression on him. Yes. And it was always funny when it was, oh, good, they've seen the movie. You know, it's like one of the most seen movies ever. Yeah. But he could also do... The Elephant Man or Igor kind of a, a look. His body language yeah. was so evocative. The way he would change his posture and his, his face when he would do the, the rich persona. Mm-hmm. You know, he was able to, to morph into different characters very quickly, effortlessly, and completely. I don't know that we've ever heard any other actor talk about mask training. No, and... I mean, it makes perfect sense for him when I think about it now, um, but he's the first that I recall mentioning it. His training at Juilliard and other places, he is surprisingly well-trained for the goofball he could come across as. Yes. You know, just, oh, he's got some annex. It's like, no, this guy knows what the hell he was doing. Yeah. His knowledge of of Shakespeare and how to act that way, Mm -hmm. amazing. Well, and as you were saying, with being able to simply off the cuff create iambic pentameter for, in the case of the Dick Cavett show, a improvisational play about Three Mile Island. Yes. And it was clear that Dick Cavett was having problems doing a single line and here... You know, Robin would go on for a few stanzas effortlessly. Yeah. Um, he was also in a few of the Whose Line Is, is It Anyways episodes and just showing off his improvisational stuff. And that had to be both a highlight for those guys who were regulars on the show and also a bit intimidating for them. Yeah, I don't think he was ever on Hollywood Squares, but I bet he would have been funny. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think. Um, Gilbert Gottfried was on Hollywood Squares quite a bit. And at one point, there was an episode where they only had, I mean, it was basically tic-tac-toe. They only have one board, if you will. 
because Gilbert Gottfried was going to be the deciding box. Mm. And they basically did all the other eight squares and they spent the rest of the 20 minutes. I'll take Gilbert for the win. I'll take Gilbert for the win. I'll take Gilbert. And he's like, come on, people. How hard is this game? So people from other boxes were coming down to visit him. Oh, that's funny. Just to get screen time. Yeah. And I can see Robin Williams having that kind of effect on that kind of show. Oh, absolutely. He would have been great to have in a number of, of classic game shows. Yeah. Because, I mean, Hollywood Squares was basically a, is he telling the truth or not? Yeah. And with Robin Williams... You would have no tells. Yeah, his ability to really sell whatever material he had partially came from not holding anything back Mm -hmm. and partially came from just a crazy wealth of knowledge he seemed to have. You mentioned earlier if we could have interviews with basically anyone from his life and career. And I don't know, don't have with me the list of what's on the 22-disc set, but... If I could ask Pam Dauber. Yes, she would definitely be one. Yeah. If I could ask her any question about Mork and Mindy and uh, working with Robin Williams, one of the things that's been said about uh, Felicia Rashad and Bill Mm. Cosby and why she worked Mm. with him on not one but two sitcoms is that Bill Cosby would distract himself with improvs and sidelines and things and her gift, Felicia Rashad, was that she didn't get distracted by his improvs and she could keep track of the script and she could improv him back on the script. She could reel him back in and seemed to be willing to do so. Yeah, and I can't help but wonder if Pam Dauber had that same type of relationship with Robin Williams. That would be fascinating to find out. Because I think she did a, a great job on the show. She did. She had a number of other movies she was doing at the time. She was in The Girl to Go Watch with and everything in its sequel um, with uh, Robert Hayes, I believe. But to work with Robin, who could just go off in any direction, and then also add Jonathan Winters into the mix. Yeah. Um, that that takes a special kind of a person. Yeah. Well, my I guess my other question would be, at the end of each filming day of Mork and Mindy, did she feel like she had just run a marathon? Oh, yeah, that had to be exhausting, too. I would be interested to hear from Robin's kids um, how they saw his relationship with Christopher Reeve, his relationship with them, all of that stuff, because I know... You know, obviously from personal experience, what it was like to lose my father and how that impacted my father's friends and, and circle and such. And obviously, Robin Williams, his circle, to some degree, covered literally the planet uh, through his impact and such. And that, that had to be a, a odd thing to deal with yeah. for them, you know. Um, and, and certainly, you know, this sort of uh, DVD set is is a great way to to celebrate the life and the, the comedy of, of robin williams but it's also hard not to think back and and wonder had he not died what could we have gotten after that if anything maybe not but even if he had because of medical reasons to retire it'd be nice to know he was still out there potentially able to get cured later or whatever or mentoring or mentoring or just hanging with his family yeah 
you know if it's it's one of those things that i think a lot of people would like to give back either to somebody famous like robin williams or to other people in their lives if they can help it's one of those things that i think out of uh that experience with robin williams there's a lot of education that couldn't should go on about suicide depression things like that just as a lot came out with uh, christopher reeves about paralysis and all of that stuff with john ritter about uh heart failure and things of that nature um just like uh um michael j fox with uh, parkinson's he's been a huge proponent of that and well and i think in the case of all of these ailments being mentioned not just sort of the primary symptoms and the primary things to be aware of but the secondary a lot of these things can trigger depression and other side effects and that's something to be aware of and to be watching for and to alert loved ones hey i've been diagnosed with and you may need to help me keep an eye for Mm -hmm. yeah well it comes back to everybody needs a support structure and everybody is somebody else's support structure, whether they even know it or not. And sometimes just having a kind word to say for somebody at the right time, it can make a big difference, you know. So try to be there for, for other people and stuff. That's part of why with the uh, forum and the Slack channel, I get a little frustrated when people are, I don't say vindictive or petty, but less than positive. Yeah, Everybody has moments like that. And I'm not suggesting I don't, but there comes a point where I don't want that in, in my community. I want the, the area to be somewhere that if people are having a bad day, if they're feeling vulnerable or just not in a good mental space, they've got a safe place to come to. We can talk about comics or comedians in this case and come together about what we agree about. Or even if we disagree, we can do so respectfully and constructively mm-hmm. because life is too short not to be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And again, sometimes just having that supportive word for somebody at the right time can really help. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I really uh, appreciated from one of my coworkers is one of the guys, and I've known him the entire time I've been at this company pretty much. One of our mutual coworkers had died about a week before I went on the trip. Just out of the blue, heart attack, totally shocking. Um, and this was a close friend of, of that co-worker and it had happened just close enough to, to my dad's death that it kind of resonated with this co-worker and he was very supportive if you ever need to talk or something like that, you know, so sorry. And it was one of those things that made me feel a little less alone in what I was going through mm-hmm. that it, it helped. Yeah. So it's, um, it's one of those things that every death, again, like I said, is, is tragic with suicide i think it's got the ripple effect of people around the person wondering what could i have done differently and maybe there wasn't something maybe there was but the lingering doubt is is really um as i don't say as tragic as as the death itself because i mean the death is very tragic but it's as painful it's as painful it's it makes it hard to to get through that kind of stuff sometimes and I hope nobody has to go through that. If there's anything that can be done to prevent it, let's let's help each other out. Yeah. So kind of a, a sad note. It's it's a fun DVD set. The comedy specials are hilarious. Well, and I think it's well named Robin Williams Comic Genius. 
Yeah, and man, seeing Mork era young Robin. Yes. In his zaniest to adult fifty-eight-year-old Robin, arguably his most political. Seeing well, seeing young Robin trip over the uh, cord of his mic and turn it into a prop, calling for Spock to beam him up. Yeah. I mean, he just never stops. Yeah, there were some of the free association stuff um, was was insane. And I, I really enjoyed that bit when he pulled John Ritter up and they just, they had fun on stage. And at the end of that, what I loved is Robin gets off stage and the camera follows him back to the dressing room. And you could, I, I took it as there was a little bit of, come on, I'm done, leave me alone thought. Not that he said that, uh, but there was also, he's sitting there, you could tell he's trying to come down from that that energy level he had. And he was commenting on just how fun it was to play with John on stage. I bet. And how much he seemed to, to enjoy that. Um, because it was clear Robin was one of those types of people that on stage like that, he came alive in a way that I think few people on the planet kind of ever do. Mm-hmm. He was he was at home there. He was sometimes in control, sometimes not in different ways. But he enjoyed making people laugh. Yeah, which is a, a true gift. And like I said, the world is is lesser without him around. Well, I will admit, watching this left me wanting to rewatch the series Soap with Billy Crystal mm-hmm. and Mork and Mendy. It certainly had me rethinking uh, my thoughts on John Ritter. Mm. They went up quite a bit based on the guy could hold his own with Robin Williams. And it made me look at Ritter's career in a different light. But also, again, some point watch, rewatching Good Morning Vietnam yes. and, and stuff like that. Because Robin Williams, both comedically and dramatically, very powerful, very talented yeah. and very fun to watch. So, like we said, there's three versions of this. There's a single disc set, a five disc set, which is what we got and watched, and then the 22 disc set Uber edition with Mork and Mindy, uh, all kinds of of interviews. I think a lot of his late night talk show appearances or whatever, and some of those are hilarious. Mm -hmm. If you're a fan, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, Anything else? Does that do it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.